Secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Samantha Tucker earned an English MA at Colorado State University. She has written for the blogs of Brevity, Colorado Review, and The Toast, and was a theater-slash-cultural critic with Show Business Weekly and Springs Magazine. She is finishing her first collection of essays, The American Dream Starts Here, with final edits. She says, do soon, which she is looking forward to with unalloyed anticipation and happiness. Yeah. So welcome to Craft, Samantha Tucker. Thank you. You were uh, recommended here to to talk to me on this show by one of your teachers. We'll we'll name names in a little bit. (laughs) Because he knew of your humor writing. Yes. So tell me about your background. How did you get into humor writing? Were you the class clown? Yes, I was I was a perfectionist and also the class clown. I don't know how that worked out for me. I was a theater kid, really. Okay. Um, my undergraduate degree was in acting directing with a focus on sketch comedy and improv. How do you get a focus on sketch comedy and improv? I mean, what you just decide. Okay. It doesn't say on my degree. I just decided that ah, was my focus, okay. and then I focused on that. So that's not a, a an academic area of, no. of focus. No, it's but once you say a degree in theater people stop listening after that. So mm-hmm. I just add what I feel like adding. Okay. So how far afield have you gone with that where you said, and, you know, uh, nuclear engineering, since you can add anything you want after that? Oh, I mean, I've, I've said things about being um, a doula and um, a seamstress, which is, I mean, I did take some costume shop classes, so right. that's not, you know, too hard to believe. Okay. Um, but as soon as I start talking about, like technology and IT stuff, people are like, yeah, she's she's making things up. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I thought with the first one you were going to say that you told people you got a doula degree. <laughs> two, but no. So, um, that would have been better. <laughs> well, you know, you can use that. So tell me about uh, what led you to go from being a theater kid to deciding, hey, this English thing has some legs. I should look into it, this writing thing. I mean, I, I was always split, and even in high school – I I did drama club, but my best subject and my favorite subject was English. And so I often did both of them side by side, or I would write my own work and then perform that. Um, So they often kind of went in tandem. And then after I graduated, my husband and I, we weren't married yet, but we moved to New York City. And I was not getting acting gigs, but I was getting writing gigs. So... So it's easier to be a writer than an actor is what you're saying. It's just so much more open. Um, no, everyone listening should probably get a degree in engineering. Okay. <laughs> be in STEM. Yeah, kids. stop doing art. Stop doing art, right. Okay. I've, I've shared that sentiment with my own children. I have, and... I'm on my third art degree right now, P.S. Okay. So I, I'm just apparently not going to learn. Well, or you're only going to learn too much, right? <laughs> it's just too much learning. Too right? much learning. Um, who was the writer? Um, Jack London was very successful, then went to school to learn how to write and couldn't sell after that. Yeah. Not that this should deter you from finishing your MFA, but... Or my book edits. That or your book edits, right. right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so your book, The American Dream, starts here. Mm-hmm. Tell me about uh, the essays that are in that, and uh, I think maybe you have one to share. Yeah. Um, so the American dream starts here is about my hometown fountain, Colorado and my working class, working poor family. Um, it's about the military and war, the, 
the crux of it is really my brother was killed in Iraq in 2008. The book is comedic. <laughs> okay. It is though. I I mean my family has always always coped with humor. Um and so a lot of the essays are dark and a lot of the essays are darkly funny. Um and I really think that sometimes the strongest humor is that which comes out of poignancy. Um I think that they're actually quite related. Okay. Like those those feelings of grief and then those wild feelings of something being humorous or something you can't help but laugh at. Okay. So I think you've got one uh, to share, right? Yeah. So this one, I, I picked one that wasn't so dark. This is about um, the time I lived in Korea for two years. So my grandmother is from Seoul and she was a war bride. She met my grandpa when he was stationed there and she came over and never went back to Korea. Um, and I was really curious about, you know, where she lived and, and the things about our culture that I didn't really understand but were hap- it was happening in our family where I was raised in a Korean way. Um, but I, should I tell the listeners, like, how white I look? Like, you're sitting right in front of me. I'm <laughs> well, I think you're the only one that's going to be able to do that here. Uh, I'm not going to be... The, the essay will... Actually, it's in the first paragraph, so maybe I should just okay. start reading. But this is about um, living in Korea and trying to culturally acclimate or appropriate. Even. Okay. Okay. So it's called In the Flesh. You will go to the spa in Naked, yes. My Korean co-teachers dared, my Korean students too. And I'd have to stop myself from saying, dude, my mom's probably naked back in America right now. My Korean co-teachers kept offering to take me as if I would never be Korean enough, as if I was far too westernized, no matter their praising of my chopstick accuracies, my kimchi gorging abilities, my Korean-American mother, or my harmony, my Korean grandmother. I am as Aryan-looking as they get. Dad's side was German, but the good kind, they'd reassure, no Hitler youth or anything, despite our light hair, pasty skin. I'm so white, my Korean students asked me if I'd ever smelled like mayonnaise, or saltine crackers, or Kraft macaroni and cheese. But I am Korean, I wanted to plead. Perhaps you catch a whiff of garlic, yes? I can say that, quarter Korean me. This the very reason I'd moved me and my patient husband to Korea to teach English and to uncover my heritage, to lay bare the ways my mother, my grandmother raised me, in Korean ways I never understood as Korean, so much as different or weird in comparison to my friends. Unlike most of my American friends, nudity truly is a non-issue for me. Every morning, my half-Korean mom gets out of the shower, sits on a fluffy JCPenney towel laid over the carpet in her bedroom, and applies makeup to her slightly almond-shaped eyes, blow-dries her auburn curls, lotions her neck, all nude, all the time. Culturally, it is factual to say my home was far less clothed than those of my anglicized friends. My little sister Daisy and I shared a room our entire childhood, and we often sat on our mother's bed in the morning, begging for allowances, shirking chores, crying for lack of boyfriends, else we sat cross-legged and naked on our own beds, a red bunk bed despite our age, me all naked limbs climbing to the top, the cold metal shocking my skin, and plotted plans to steal each other's clothing. I can describe to you the color and sheen of my mother's C-section scars, though I'm not sure she'd appreciate it. I know the sight of my sister's bucks and butt better than my own, so unlike other American families, it became a game, threatening a flash at our conventional uptight friends. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to where I actually got to the Korean spa. So my my friend Gloria, her Korean name is Ak Young. 
Um, where the nudity starts. Where the nudity so, really starts. Yeah, so you starts. really might want to lead with that. Yeah, that's ahead. what I should have started with the nakedness. Yeah. When Ak Young, my co-teacher and friend, whose chosen English name was Gloria, took me to Shinsege, the crown jewel of naked spas, I nearly disrobed too soon. I mistook the lobby lockers for the main event. No, no, she cried out. These are for shoes only. We will undress in the private women's section. Many Koreans were already staring at me, bemused as always at my alien face, my orange hair, and when Gloria screamed, they only nodded in agreement and smiled as if my actions were to be expected, as if they knew back in America my sister timed her showers so she entered our bedroom just as company called. Of course my quarter Korean sister dropped towel purposefully. Of course she'd insert herself in your line of sight, her butt prolific enough only a 180-degree head swivel may remove it from peripheral views." Surely the Korean women understood if this were too subtle, my sister would jump up and down screaming, I love the Backstreet Boys, and do so until I'd tear off my own shirt, my training bra, and join her. My sister and I were simply conditioning people to our culture, and this must be why I had long looked forward to the Korean spa, the nudity, something I'd embraced or threatened or avoided for the sake of others, my whole life. In the locker room, I still undressed too early. The space was large but intimate, rows of lockers and full-length mirrors in the softest of lighting. Shelves of an ending, clean, fluffy white towels were at her disposal, and vending machines burst with soaps and deodorants and Gatorade, for the electrolytes, I presumed. Women finished with their spa day applying makeup, nude, beside each other at a chorus line of vanity tables. Women used communal blow dryers on their hairs above and below. Towels were dropped, and nude women bent to pick them up. I felt at home, and as though I needed to prove such, so when Gloria and I reached our side-by-side -side lockers, I tore off everything, tossed it all in, unfolded. <clears throat> I clutched my towel at arm's length, my body resplendent and glowing, like a pearly beacon in the night, a, a white American, but also slightly Korean-American lighthouse, daring Gloria and all of the women to take it in. Wow, you are very excited to do this, Gloria stated, carefully laying her pants, shirt, undergarments in her locker. She went as slow as, you could, as she could manage, perfecting the folds, the creases, the long removal of the diamond ring she bought on a credit card so her husband wouldn't know. That's my favorite thing about the Korean spa, the nakedness, which is different than the nudity, although the nudity's why I went in the first place. This felt like a space where intimacy was not expected, but insisted upon, where women shared openly their thoughts and stretch marks. Perhaps here I could address the ways in which Gloria called me by my Korean name and demanded utmost Koreanness from me. Yes, Ga'ul, you will do many extra hours of work this week. Surely you understand, Ga'ul. But she also denied me full access. You don't understand, Samantha. This is the Korean way, and you are American. I had awaited this, the nakedness, the nudity. We strutted through those double sliding glass doors, left the kind glow of the vanities in the locker room, and entered a moist cavern of nakedness. As Gloria forced me to scrub her back with a loofah glove, I hoped we'd entered a place with nowhere to hide, all of us airing our grievances in a steamy Grecian-style blue-tiled dome of hot water, open shower stalls, boiling water, freezing pools, and lovely woodland saunas. Here's yours, she said, and picked up a pink glove, turned me round, and scrubbed my back a little less longer than I'd scrubbed hers. Can I say breasts on the radio? Yes, you can. I'm, I'm going to say it a few times now. Pancake breasts hung, flapjacks laid across chests, and pendulous ones proved pendulous breasts is not only an overused description, but a wholly accurate one disting distinguishing heaving, swinging mounds of nippled flesh. 
everywhere. The stomach's flat and bloated, some perky, some low down, most mostly flat bottoms, mostly what my grandpa confidently referred to as that Korean disease your grandma and your mom have no butt at all, as if he'd had a right to proclaim this because he'd married into the culture. The pockmarked backs, the cellulite thighs, the hairy triangles announced themselves individually but communally, and in doing so rendered themselves wholly irrelevant. We openly stared at each other's parts because they were all there and so not there at all. We were one vagina, one bottom, one set of breasts, one body, luxuriating in ripples of hot tub jets and foggy, dreamy air. Our nudity so relevant, it was no longer so. Really, I just wanted the chance to say vagina and breasts on the radio. I think that's great. Thank you. (laughs) Tell me about writing this essay. When, When was it written? I wrote it this semester in my professor's class. When you're in an academic course on humor writing, it reminds me of Sigmund Freud's take on (laughs) humor, right? Yeah. So so he thoroughly destroys all the humor in jokes by analyzing them. Yeah. Tell me about that in a course like Andrew Hudgens' course on writing humor. I mean, it wasn't so much... um, like peer-based analysis that would take out the humor. It would. It was Andrew Hudgens who would just say, "This is terrible. Okay. Um, you should start again." <laughs> terrible in the sense of not funny, or just he didn't like the writing. Yeah. Those, did no, did you mean, divorce those things? It's. It's a really hard thing. We I, we didn't do that. Like we didn't okay. academically discuss writing or humor writing because I don't think it's possible to do so. I will say that I think you either have a sense of humor or you don't. There are many different kinds. But I also think you can grow funnier. So that's contradictory. Like you have it or you don't, but also you can become more so. Um, And I think that that's one of the first things we learned in the class was, first of all, how different all of our aesthetics were. It was a small class of, I think there were seven or eight of us, and we had very distinctly different senses of humor. Um, and that's interesting because, I mean, there are things that are funny that aren't going to make you laugh out loud. There are things that are funny um, that are going to make you, well, Andrew got kidney stones this semester probably because my writing was so funny. That's right. my assumption. Right. I think he'll that's... love to hear that. Yeah. I mean, you said there were different styles of humor. Mm-hmm. Your sense of humor is kidney stone inducing. Yes. Okay. That's what I would say. Right. Is that a, do you see that as a genre <laughs> that is on the rise? Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to get it out there. Mm-hmm. This is all going to be, you know, the decision of the publishing houses and marketing. And... I would assume that you could be backed by urologists. Oh, definitely. That would be where I would go. Which is this. also a, another addition to my theater degree. I'm also... Urology. Uh, studied urology. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, so. I have more power to you. Um, <laughs> my brother uh, passed a kidney stone and removed a sink from the wall while he was doing it um, wow. because he, he claimed that it was such an invigorating experience <laughs> that he was enabled almost Hulk-like to oh uh, take this. And he is a scrawny guy like I am. So... Slightly less scrawny. I think kidney stones is the one where men like to say, oh, it's, I hear it's as close as we can get to childbirth, which, sure. <laughs> are you, are you diminishing uh, the I'm not. A? Okay. No, I'm not. Fine. I'm suggesting your brother has some really funny people in his life that cause these kidney stones and right. his Hulk strength and his pain that was similar, but not really at all like childbirth. Okay. 
All right. Um, I will. I will. I will tell him that sure, as, as soon do. as I can. You know, they, your your pain has been mocked, but, and I don't know who the funny people in his life would be. You would have to look long and hard for that okay. in his family. Um, but anyway, so if you had said that there are so many different kinds of senses of humor, yeah, tell me about what you mean by that. I mean, how did you look at the other people in the class? And you don't have to name names, although sure. it would be great if you did. <laughs> And say, you I know, think they'd be delighted. Delighted, if they did. yeah. You know, this person's sense of humor is scatological. This person's <laughs> sense of humor is Andrew. That was Andrew, right? Yeah. <laughs> Andrew Hudson's the author of uh, "Shut Up, You're Fine." Yeah, poems for very, very bad children. <laughs> the Joker. Yeah. Um, uh, then he's got one called, I think, "The Clown at Midnight" or uh-huh. something like that. Um, so, what what are what are the genres that you saw and the different kinds of senses of humor? I mean, I think. I don't know if I can name them in genre, but they are so closely related to self. Um, I have a friend named David Buxpan. He's going to be excited that I just said his name on the radio. Right. And David is Jewish and from Brooklyn, and he has this very kind of dry, um, I want to say dated, and dated is the wrong word, so no Mm -hmm. offense to David, but it's, it's an older kind of sense of humor. The things that make David laugh are very specific to where David is from mm-hmm. and David's experience growing up in Brooklyn. And um, we had the, the age disparity was interesting where as David and I and our friend Liz were on the older end of the spectrum, we had some young women who were just out of undergrad in their early 20s and their, their language is more colloquial and they use a lot of like internet speak. And a lot of I love re- the fact that your your face squished up right <laughs> Did there. It? Internet speak. Well, this like- is the thing though. Like I'm on the cusp <laughs> of that. I'm both like I'm I'm right at the cusp of my family got an Acer computer because we had to when I was 16. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get a cell phone until I was like 23 and could pay for it myself. Mm-hmm. And now I'm teaching these students who have had, you know, they're they're too cool for Facebook. They've had, but they've had Instagram their whole lives or right. something like yeah. that. So it's it's an interesting place to be as a teacher where you're like, I recognize what you're doing and I find it funny because I am a consumer of the internets as well. But also there's a weird delineation between what you're doing and I'm doing. Right. And I'm not going to point out that you said internets. I do. I will um, continue and, and to that, say internets. That in no way marks you <laughs> as a particular age. It might. <laughs> in, the internets, that series the internets. of tubes, the internets. So um, when then, you know, I mean, the sense of sense of humor is incredibly subjective. That oh, yes. seems very clear. But how did uh, did you work through that in a course like this on humor? Because you could say anybody can respond to a critique, say, by the instructor. Well, you just don't get it. And that's the, the death knell yeah. for anybody being able to give feedback on humor. Well, you just don't get it. Well, You're and that's where you need to be considering audience and... I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, I, I worked in a comedy club for two years in New York and I I watched the same men do the same, mostly men, some amazing women, but mostly these white men come in and do the same routine over and over and over again and have it just kill where the audience is crying in the aisles and then the next day it's crickets. And so they're the same jokes. They're the same they're saying the exact same things, but the audience makes all the difference. Um, and because, you know, I'm not, I don't have a publisher just yet. And I don't have a place that's regularly picking up my stuff like David Sedaris at the New Yorker. Um, 
Did I call out to him, David Sedaris? Yeah, that, that David Sedaris. Yeah. Um, who's, yeah. We, have, we have the same agent. We're at the same agency. Oh. Yeah. Well, then you should just call him up. Yeah, we, he should come and be on this podcast with me right yeah, now. Yeah, right now. I can't believe that he's not. No. It's disappointing. I'm Do you sorry. hear that, Sedaris? <laughs> <laughs> but he know, he has an audience. I mean, right. he's built an audience, but he knows his audience. And so until that is the case, I, I'm my own audience. But is that part of what you're thinking about in a class like this, right? Defining maybe for yourself who, who is your audience? Because when I used to teach... Um, Back in the days of pen and paper, sure, sure, <laughs> um, we would often talk about audience, right? You mm-hmm. would say, "Well, what is you know your audience for this?" And it's one of my foundational things that I go to when I write a piece. I mean, who am I aiming at? What am I? And I, you know, I've never defined it for myself much more than you know um, people my age who might laugh at something like this, or people my age who you know want to be depressed. <laughs> um, so. How does that work for you in comedy? I mean, do you have a defined audience that you're aiming for in your head? I'm well. If we're talking about in my head, it's it's my family. It's my okay. mom and my dad and my sister and my brother and my family is highly performative and also angry that I use performative as a word now that I'm a quote academic. Mm. Um, what would they prefer you use? Definitely not that word. <laughs> Funny. Really, okay. really funny. Okay. Loud. Garrulous is another one they would not prefer, but it's mm-hmm. one that just came to mind. Um, okay. They're talkative and they're loud and they are the life of the party often. We're often, we are kind of competing for the spotlight amongst each other, I feel like. My grandparents were hilarious too. Mm-hmm. But I do think in a class, and even, and this is any writing class really, one of the hardest things to learn or to digest is that everyone is not going to love your writing, whether it's humor writing, whether I'm writing some of my darker stuff. And that, I mean, you you go in thinking, oh, everyone should think what I work so hard on is delightful and it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, even your mom might not like it. Susan Arnold, Fountain, Colorado. <laughs> That's my mm-hmm. mom. That's where she's at now. <laughs> okay, right, right. But you, in a workshop, you have to find your audience. You have to... I mean, through reading other people's work and critiquing it and learning from that too, and also reading their feedback on your on your own work, you get to know who is responding to what you do and in what way are they responding. And then you listen to those voices. You listen to the voices that understand what it is you're trying to accomplish. And you get to a place where you're like, okay, well, this, this person isn't getting it and I'm not going to take it personally. I'm going to focus on this is what I want to do. And this is a person who has suggestions that will help me do that. That's always seemed to me the line that you you go with, right? Because the the line that's difficult. Um, this person doesn't get it, so I'm setting aside um, their commentary. If that person happens to be the instructor, then you know you're you <laughs> sometimes it is. You, you know you've created a <laughs> yeah. space there that can be you know perhaps academically difficult for yes. yourself. But it's also the where you have that whole um, what is polar. Um, Polonius, to thine own self be true. Yes. Right? Did yes. I get that right? You Maybe. did get it right. right. All right. Look at me. Uh, I took a Shakespeare class. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but that also also seems to me to be the source of where you can go wrong, right? If you don't take the good advice. When I say to my kids, for example, put on a hat, it's zero and they don't. Yeah. Then as the instructor, you're sitting there going, where have I gone wrong with these people? Why can't I get them to do that? And so you're in the dual position of being a student and in the course where you get to give the advice as the teacher 
um, sorry, as a teacher and as a student. So you give the advice as this teacher and you get to see whether that's taken at the same time you're taking advice yeah. and maybe taking it, maybe not. Yeah. I think, um, being a teacher has definitely changed how I take in feedback from my professor, but also from my peers and what I do with that feedback. Um, but I think, I mean, you, we, we spent some time talking about things like rhythm and tempo and timing, which I think are so essential specifically to humor writing. Um, but again, everyone, we were all doing such different things and doing things, right, writing humor pieces on, you know, you're on war and your brother going to Iraq or humor pieces on um, racial injustice or humor pieces on Tinder dating. Do you know what the kids are doing these days, Tinder? Uh, I've heard of the swipe kids left, swipe doing right, this. Swipe I don't know right, why yeah. you think that I'm not. <laughs> On, I on am this. the one that said internet. Yes. Not yeah. You. I, so. you know, although my wife of 20 plus years probably wouldn't be happy to, to learn that, that you no, know about the, which that. That I know about it. Which yeah. swipe is the one where you say yes versus no? I want to left. I want to start using it as a verb. Because right. Like, right swipe, they go no, no on that commercial. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Right? That's yeah. how you know. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sure. I'm right up there with all. I, I want to start like when I say yes to things. I want to say I want to say swipe right. I'm going to try and make that I think happen. it's right swipe. Right right swipe. Yeah. I'm just Are you throwing sure? A, well. Swipe right sounds, doesn't right, sound better. I like right swipe. Okay. Really. I don't know. I don't, I, I can't tell you which is correct uh, because I have no idea what, you know, I've not. See, this conversation is funny because we're out of our element, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, th then you would enjoy most of the conversations in my life. <laughs> Because I don't know what my element is. It's not water. It's not nitrogen. That's N2. That's a little <laughs> chemistry joke there. Nitrogen is the... Which uh, I also largest. studied briefly while in the theater. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down that rabbit hole. What? Why were you studying chemistry in theater? Not that it's not something, but was it so that you could do uh, chemical reactions on stage for a, a response? Or was this just one of your GEs? A uh, GE. Okay. <laughs> Okay. But also, I I liked the um, metaphor about chemistry on stage, so we could say yes to that also. Okay, like yeah. you're going to be a magician, or you're yeah. bringing up fog. You know, that, you put the fog juice in the machine, and totally. that was the you know the extent of um, theater chemistry. Yeah. Well, now that you're you have this book of essays nearly complete, mm -hmm. as you look back on it and you think about the course that you went through that had probably some impact on it. And you think about academic um, versus, you know, consumer or commercial writing. Yeah. What's your, your take on it? What would you have done differently when you started off that now you see, uh, maybe you see the great wisdom of Andrew Hudgens' advice now. Yeah. This is the chance to get, you know, that, that better grade revision. Uh, so my response to this is ultimately probably not that funny. I His humor class brought me back to where where I really started with writing was wanting to write funny, wanting to write sketch um, or, or do some improv work. And I really got away from that once my brother passed away. And this work was, you know, directly because of, of his death and the war in Iraq and my family's experience since then. Um, but once I started, once I was in Andrew's class and even during my time here at OSU, when I was blogging a little bit on my website, I had written enough of the book to feel like I'd gotten the heaviness out. 
and I found the humor again. And so I, I go, I've gone back through now in some of the essays and really amped up some of the lighter stuff. Um, and it's, it makes a huge difference. Like it makes, it makes the reading bearable. It makes the bearable moments for you bearable you for the your... reader, I okay. think. And um, like the hard part, the hard stuff is bearable for me, but the reader, you don't want them to be wiped out. And I think the poignant stuff also hits that much harder when you've got the laughter before and when you've got, you know, anecdotes on uh, your brother's death date sounding like a barcode on a Coca-Cola box. Feel free to laugh. <laughs> it's yeah, okay. That, <laughs> you don't have to if you don't want to. Uh, but well, you got to look. You got. You have to look for. And maybe humor is not um, the most apt word. Maybe it's the absurdity of all of it. Um, mm. But I think the humor, uh, the humorous bits of this book, um, is what will make make the book really for the masses and digestible for a lot of people. Okay. I think the other stuff is just as important and I, I'm hoping for change and, and um, like I'm a social justice activist. I want things to be better, but you can, you can hear about yourself and hear about the world being difficult. I think better when you can also laugh at it and laugh at yourself. Okay. So one last question. Um, now that you've got this done, how much has your family read it? Uh, and, 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 uh, I think that gets it. Um, my mom read an essay last year. Um, she's read a few of them. My aunts and my uncles are really kind of caught up on it, but my mom and my stepdad and my sister are more hit or miss. Um, what do you mean? Like hit or miss? Like they've read some, not others. Not yeah. Piece, yeah. Not like I'll thing. send them the links, um, to places I've published and I've, I've got a good number racked up now. And, uh, Sometimes they respond and sometimes they don't. And they, I think they do respond better to the humorous ones um, because it, it's hard. But, yeah, they haven't read uh, – they probably read like 10% of it, maybe. Mm -hmm. That might be a high number. Um, and I'm not – I'm sending pieces out to humor sites, but the humor sites are not biting. And they're not biting for a lot of people. And the other thing is they're not paying. Places like McSweeney's um, – they don't they don't pay anything right yeah so, yeah and which you know is one of the other areas that i was curious about whether you had discussed in the class was how do you sell stuff how do you make a living how is it commercial um you know like andrew hudgens uh has has several books yeah and that's and you're going in the same direction you know but there's so much humor that's so easily digestible so easily accessed yeah that's online now that as with so many other things it seems like that's changing the paradigm of making a living at it. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, Andrew's wonderful because he, he gave us resources and he gave us places to send based on our aesthetics. Um, and he was very, you know, he's a careful reader and he knows where our work will fit. Um, and so that's very helpful, but you know, especially because I write nonfiction and my humor writing is nonfiction. Um, a lot of places are not going to, you know, take up my mantle because I don't have a strong enough platform or I don't have an Instagram following, even though I tried really hard to get one by making cakes and decorating them poorly. It didn't go so well. <laughs> 
I called it a cakestagram. Okay. Yeah. Was that intentional, the uh, uh, bad decoration, or was this a fail blog? No, I I wanted it to look like I thought I was really good at cake. It was like a cake persona. Okay. Because my agent's like, yeah, you need a platform. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to make some cakes. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I made box cakes, and then I would decorate them according to, like, I don't know. I would, I did a movie review on one of them. Um, mm-hmm. and I, on one cake, I wrote patriarchy really big and took it to my gender studies class and made them eat it. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go over? Was it, uh, was it, was it digestible? Yeah. They all like chocolate okay. and they all loathe the patriarchy. So, so you get to cut up the patriarchy yeah, we in get class. To cut it up and was that cathartic? For the students? It was for me. Okay. Making them right. eat it. Right. <laughs> you sound like an angry parent. You will eat your Brussels sprouts. Yeah. You will eat that chocolate cake. And you will be happy about it. Well, <laughs> Samantha Tucker, thank you very much for talking to me today on Craft. Yeah, thanks, Doug. We'll have all of your links uh, up on the website. Wonderful. And uh, people can go and uh, be amused. Even Samantha's family. Do you hear this? We're calling you out. Be amused. Be amused. Mom. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. Be creative.